Beyond the Summit, Trinity College's new podcast that looks at accomplished alumni and asks them how they became who they are. I'm your host, Paul Sullivan, Trinity Class of 1995, and this season's focus is entrepreneurs. With me today is Liz Elting, Class of 1987. While in business school at NYU, Liz founded TransPerfect. That was in 1992. And in the past three decades, the company has grown to over 5,000 employees in 90 countries with $700 million in annual revenue. In 2018, she sold her stake to her co-founder. For several years before that, she was featured on lists of the wealthiest self-made women in America. Since the sale, Liz has turned her attention to philanthropy. Liz, thanks for talking with me. Let's start with some basics. Where did you grow up? Okay. Well, I originally was born in Westchester, and I lived there until I was eight. And then when I was eight, I actually moved to Portugal for a year and was able to live there, then came back to Westchester for one more year, Chappaqua. And then when I was 10, moved to Toronto. And, and, and I, lived in, I lived in Toronto until I was 17, and, and I went off to Trinity College. Yep. And, and what, what caused you to move around like that? Why Portugal? Why Toronto? Sure, sure. So my dad had been in marketing and advertising when we lived in New York. He worked in the city and we were living in Chappaqua. And when I was eight, he got the opportunity to open Kentucky Fried Chicken in Portugal. He got the franchise and we were able to move over there. Uh, However, right after we made the decision to move, and moved, the Portuguese Communist Revolution broke out. So it was a crazy time to live there. And they were very anti-American, anti-capitalism um, in Portugal. And so we were only able to stay a year. And, and was it they, less that, that communist, Portuguese communists don't like Kentucky Fried Chicken? That, was that what you got? <laughs> That's right. Well, they, they don't like American business. They don't, or they didn't, you know, they didn't like fat American fast food businesses, just any kind of capitalism. So it was a fascinating year. It was 1974 to 1975. I was eight and nine. And we had demonstrations going on outside our house. We had our mail open. We had our phones tapped. And whenever people asked me what my father did for a living, I would say, he's actually opening Kentucky Fried Chicken here. And they said, yeah, right. They thought he worked for the CIA. It's a brilliant so cover. People, yeah, it sounds it, right? They, they thought, you know, that was the case because there were so many people over there at the time working for the CIA. So it was really fascinating year. When I was there, I was exposed to my first big amount of, you know, what was international. Absolutely loved it. And it was really the beginning of what happened for me as far as my passions and my, my career. But to come back, to what happened is we returned back after a year to New York. And then he went back to gray advertising. He had taken a year off of advertising, went back. And then in 1976, when I was 10, he was transferred to Toronto with gray to for a promotion and to, to run gray Toronto. So that's why we moved. Yep. And I, I read a story uh, somewhere out there about you uh, working as a kid at Toronto Blue Jays games. Is, is this true? Yes. And, and that this had uh, an influence on your, your interest in, in language and or <laughs> baseball or what, or switching to hot dogs over Kentucky. <laughs> Chicken or what, what happened here? Right. Well, first of all, thank you for um, remembering that I worked for the Blue Jays or, or for noticing that. That's really nice. I, I was brought up in a family that loved baseball. When I was a kid in New York, we 
were big Mets fans and we would go to Shea Stadium and watch the Mets. And then, of course, had that year in Portugal. But then when I moved to Toronto uh, in 1976, it was actually the Toronto Blue Jays expansion year, their first year. So we were big uh, Blue Jays followers. And then when I was uh, 17, I was fortunate enough to get a summer job being an usherette for the Toronto Blue Jays. And I was able to do that uh, for four years, four summers during college. So I always had that job and then a second job. That was my night and weekend job. And then as well, I um, did another job, but it was so much fun getting paid to watch baseball. That's awesome. And were you speaking in French to some of the, <laughs> some of the fans or mostly English? You know, mostly English, although it was it was nice hearing O Canada is, and O Canada is one of the national anthems that was played each game. And it was it was definitely in French, at least part of the time. So that was that was a neat thing. Yeah. yeah. Did you, you know, you, you living in Canada, you know, those are your formative years, you know, 10 to 17. I'm sure you remember Chappaqua a bit, but but you've been, you know, gone a while. How did you pick Trinity? How did you think of a, a school back in the States and, and what stood out about Trinity? Right. Well, actually, we are a Trinity family. My dad went to Trinity. So that's how I became aware of Trinity and I knew about Trinity from the time I was born. And then my older sister uh, graduated from 1985. Uh, in 1985 from Trinity. And so then, um, I think it was when I was in 11th grade in Toronto, I started looking at colleges. I knew that I wanted to go to an American college. I was an American. And um, I got to go to the Trinity Alumni Weekend. That back then, actually, it wasn't called the Trinity Alumni Weekend. It, it was a weekend for the children of along. And I went and I spent the weekend there. And uh, when I came home, I said to my family, you know, I know I've been looking at other schools, but I love this. I want to apply ED to Trinity. And that's exactly what I did. Yeah. Good. And what, what were some of the things that, that stuck out to you, you know, when, when you got there or some of the classes that, that you still remember today? Oh, wow. Well, I loved my time at Trinity. And so as far as classes specifically, I, I determined while I was there um, that I wanted to be a language major. And um, I actually appreciated that we had so much flexibility in what we studied. And I remember a number of my courses, um, in particular my French courses, my Spanish courses, my European literature courses, and two of the courses that... Uh, definitely resonated with me and I remember very well Well, were um, World War II literature, which was taught by Dory Katz. She was a, a fabulous professor. I had also taken French and Spanish literature courses with her, but she did teach this course and I didn't know at the time that she had been a hidden child in uh, Belgium during World oh, War wow. II. She didn't talk about that back then. That she, I think she just it wasn't what she did. And now she actually does go and speak at different, uh, with different groups at different, you know, get togethers about her experience being a hidden child in World War II. But she was a wonderful person to teach that, that, um, that course. I also took another course with her called translation theory and practice. And I had no idea that that would end up being my career, but that was a wonderful course that she taught all about, you know, how translation works. Um, and were you doing, tra were you doing translation in the class? 
Is that what she yes, said? Yes, we yeah. were. That was my senior year. And that was after I'd done my junior year abroad. I did my junior year abroad. You know, that was an amazing experience that, of and course, I did through that? Trinity. It was in Cordoba, Spain. And wow. it was the time of my life. And it, Trinity, it was a Trinity program. I absolutely loved it. But um, so anyway, I was doing translation in that course, but I didn't know where it would lead. And, you know, Dory was really a terrific professor and a real role model for me because she actually started at Trinity in 1969 as a professor. And um, that was the year that Trinity started um, being co-ed. So yep. she was the first, uh, she was there the first year that Trinity was co-ed. And then she ended up being the first woman tenured professor or tenured woman professor. So she's a real pioneer and uh, she was a wonderful professor. Yeah. And one, and she is a wonderful person. I, I got to know her as time went on and yeah, what a terrific person. Was she your advisor? She was not my advisor. I had um, someone uh, someone named Professor Kenneth Lloyd Jones. Okay. And he was fantastic. And I remember one of the things he said to me when I said, I want to do my junior year abroad. And because I'm a modern language major and my languages are French and Spanish, um, I want to do a semester in Spain and a semester in France. He said, That's not a good idea. <laughs> Don't do that. He said, It's really such a big adjustment when you go to a place like Cordoba, Spain, where no one speaks English and there are virtually no Americans, and it'll take you a couple months to get acclimated or, or at least one good month. And you don't want to be leaving shortly thereafter. Instead, pick one. And if it's Spain, stay in Spain and don't do that. So, but I, you know, being, a, I guess, an 18-year-old at the time, you know, thought I, I knew everything. And I said, no, I'll, I'll do both. I'll do France and Spain. Well, turned out there I was about October 25th, November 1st, first semester, junior year in Spain. And I thought to myself and said, Professor Lloyd-Jones was absolutely right. So I called up and I said, uh, I called up the program and I said, I'm so sorry. I made a mistake. I want to stay in Spain. Can I cancel Paris? Canceled Paris, ended up staying the year in Spain. So Kenneth Lloyd-Jones was absolutely right. And I, you know, learned that later. So that was interesting. Yeah. I remember when I was a student, you know, as many students do, I was, I was agonizing over my major, you know, what is this going to mean? And I was a history major and I remember taking some art history classes and I said, Oh, well, you know, I, I, I can't, be an art history major. I have to do something practical. I'll be a history major. And I've told this story because a very good friend of mine who was an art history major my year is now a very successful investment banker. So how do you take art history and become an investment banker? You know, taking history and becoming a journalist, that's a little more common. But when you, you know, thought you were going to major or decided to major in, in French and Spanish, uh, did you somehow think that was going to lead you to be one of the you know great female CEOs of, of you know in America? I mean, what, what were your thoughts in, no. in choosing French and Spanish as a major? No, absolutely not. And tr my experience when I started at Trinity was, even though I had loved languages and I had studied four languages by the time I went to Trinity, I studied Portuguese and French when I was younger, and then I studied French, Spanish, and Latin in high school. So I knew I loved languages, but I. I thought to myself, that's not practical. I'm not doing that. So I took a, a course at Trinity called, it was my freshman seminar, and it was called The Legal History of Race Relations. And I did it because I thought, I think being a lawyer makes sense. Being a lawyer, you know, it's practical. It's a good thing to do. 
And the course was terrific. And I loved it for a lot of reasons. But I also thought, I don't want to be a lawyer. <laughs> I, I learned from that. I did not want it to be It was good to learn that early. Yes. First semester freshman year. I, two of my three best friends from Trinity are, were in that class with me. And I am a big proponent of race relations and a, a, a qual- I'm a big proponent of equality. So, and uh, law is a useful thing to know in business, but I was so excited that I learned that. And then related to what you said, Paul, is it was the end of sophomore year and I was thinking to myself, I love languages, but it's so impractical. I cannot major in languages. It makes no sense. And I remember I called my dad and I said, dad, I don't know what to do. Languages are my favorite uh, thing. You know, French, Spanish are my favorite courses here. What do I do? And he said, follow your passion, do what you love. It will work out. And so uh, I had no idea what I was going to do with the languages, uh, but uh, it worked out. So, uh, what was your first job out of Trinity after you graduated? Yeah, well, okay. Literally, my very first job was I went back to Toronto for the summer and I worked for the Blue Jays one last season. And I also... Did, did they have, a, did they have a, a winning season that year, your last hurrah? That's a very good question. Uh, see, I, le- I left in August, so in the answers, I, I don't remember. I don't remember. <laughs> Fair enough. But, but that's a good question. Um, I think they were very strong. Anyway, I think it was a great season. Okay. So anyway, and then I worked in an investment management firm. I thought I'll learn a little bit about finance, but the reason I did that was I got I I got through ISEC um, an internship in Caracas in Venezuela, and it started in August. So I needed to do something between May and August. So that was why I went back to Toronto and did those things. And then I worked in a Venezuelan company with all Venezuelan employees, and I did that August, September, October, November, and then came back from Caracas, and I got my re- first real job, which was in New York at a translation company. Wow. But, but that job in Caracas was for uh, an investment management firm. Is that correct? No, that was for a company called Venezolana de Cementos, which was a cement company. And it was part of the Mendoza group, which I think was the largest privately held company in Venezuela at the time. And um, I was in the financial division there. Yeah. How, how did that, having graduated, I mean, how did that experience uh, compare to your year in, in, in Cordoba? You know, obviously the Spanish yeah. is a little different, but, but you were a little bit older and you kind of, you know, thinking about your career. How, how did it compare to this? Well, I mean, it was a very interesting experience. Um, I had loved my junior year in Spain so incredibly much and it, and I wanted to recreate it somehow. And, um, you know, this was a real job with employees and, um, you know, with coworkers and, you know, it, it was interesting. It was great for my Spanish and it was great to get an overview of finance, but I did not have the time of my life. Like I did my junior year in Spain. So just different. It was much more about work and whereas the other was about life, love, culture, and education. Sure, sure. And then when you came back and you got a job uh, in the States working for a translation company, did you stay doing that until you went to NYU Business School or did you have a few jobs between then and and business school? 
I stayed doing that. So I started that in the end of 1987, and then I did it to 1990, right before I started business school. And it was really interesting. I started in production, and then I was able to move into sales. So I really learned the industry, and I absolutely loved the industry. But I thought it could be done better. And I just kind of put the idea in my head, maybe at some point I will I will try to re-engage in this and do it better. Because at that point, what was the translation industry doing? Like, what was your day-to-day like, you know, like back then? You know, what were some of the things that you had to, that the company was providing to, to people who came to it? Walk me through. Yeah. Yeah. It was, it was actually very interesting because I felt very fortunate to find that company um, because there were very few translation companies at the time. I was just passing through New York, visiting my sister, and um, she was working for Ogilvy and Mather at the time, the ad agency, and she told me they owned a translation company. Turned out that translation company was the largest translation company in the world at the time. It was about 90 people. And they were doing work for companies, what companies needed. But basically, every deliverable was in WordPerfect and Microsoft Word. And... That was fine back then. It was really the beginning of working on computers and all of that. And they were quite cutting edge. But I knew there was a much bigger need out there with, uh, you know, a company that would offer any deliverable and top of the line quality and top of the line service. And that was really the opportunity I saw. But at the time, they were quite a pioneer. And it was a really... Um, interesting place to work. And I, I, as I said, really learned the industry there. You know, I remember after, for me, right from Trinity, I went to graduate school. And after I got my master's degree, I had some money left over and my Spanish wasn't as good as I wanted to be. So I went to Mexico and I spent the summer in Mexico. I studied, my Spanish got to be proficient. But I remember to this day going around to different hotels and the translations were awful. Like you'd see something translated from Spanish to English and it was awful. And I thought, boy, you know, I wonder, you know, why doesn't somebody change that? And then I thought to myself, I bet there's no money in it or else somebody would have done it. I, I bet, you know, it, it, it gets the point across. You, you, you understand what they're doing. How did you think, you know what, there actually is money in this and, and there is a better way to do it. And we don't have to live with this sort of mediocre translation. Yeah, no, that's really interesting that you saw that firsthand. The reason I was I was able to see it is, as I said, I was very fortunate to find that company because one thing I didn't mention, but when I walked in, I remember walking in, the company was at 21st and Park in Manhattan, and I got to the floor that was on, whatever floor it was on, 25, and I walked in, and there was a Mac on every desk, a Macintosh computer. And in 1987... That was very high tech. That was very cutting edge. I mean, sure, now it isn't, but it was a different time. And I thought, wow, this company has figured something out. You know, they they know how to make a business out of translation. And the company actually had two divisions. It was called Your America Translations and Your America Language Management. They were working for the biggest companies in the world. I remember Ford was one of their big clients. Uh, FedEx, anyway, big, big, big uh, American Express, companies yeah. like that, Ogilvy and Mather. But bottom line is I saw what they were charging, you know, and I saw what, you know, I saw this, this, there was opportunity 
here. I mean, this was business to business work. We were a business providing language solutions for businesses. And you did ask the type of, about the type of work we did. We did things like signs, but it was a lot more, you know, kind of high volume work. Um, it was everything from legal contracts to technical manuals to annual reports to, um, I mean, a lot of feasibility studies. Um, uh, and then, of course, later it moved into other things based on technology. But, for example, if IBM needed their annual report translated, typeset, um, and printed in 20 different languages, we would do it. Mm. So I thought, okay, that's an opportunity. And that's, you know, that's one project for one client. You can see there's, there was a real business there. Yeah. And, and just to add a little context here for any prospective students listening to this, so, so they don't think we have two dinosaurs speaking here. I'll say that in 1991, when I first stepped on the Trinity campus, so long after you had your first job, I was carrying a brother word processor and it wasn't until 1992 that I got an Apple, like the old school Mac that looked like a, a rectangle. And I thought right. coolest thing in the world. And you put a little disc in the front. And, and so um, to, to give a little context that, that it wasn't really all that, that long ago. Um, <laughs> but yes. on the flip side of that, um, you know, a decade before, you know, Facebook made it cool to start a company in your dorm room. Uh, you did just that in, in business school. Um, and you know, the stories I've heard of read about, you know, how you and your partner at the time, you know, started Transperfect. It was, you know, proto Mark Zuckerberg, you know, way before that kid, uh, even had this idea you, you did, and you did it in your NYU business school. So, so tell me how, how that came about how, you know, from, from dorm room to, to, to boardroom as, as the saying would go. Yeah. So, um, in a nutshell, there we were at, um, NYU business school and, um, I, I graduated and, um, to keep this part of it very brief, it, it was a tough time to get a job. This was, a uh, May of 1992 it was the, the, later part of a recession and actually during that recession i think the high point of unemployment was june of 1992 and anyway it was a tough time to get a job i did end up getting a job in finance and uh after, and i thought i had to do finance because i had just gotten my mba in finance and international business and i had to pursue that because it was practical it was lucrative i just felt like it was my responsibility. I had to try that. And I thought I loved the translation industry, but right now is the time to make some money, do something with some security, learn more about business. So anyway, started there after about four weeks, I realized, Oh my gosh, I made a tremendous mistake. This is not for me. I had loved the translation industry and I had some ideas um, about it. And this, I did not see myself um, with my boss's job or my boss's boss's job, et cetera. It was doing equity arbitrage in the proprietary trading division of a French bank. So anyway, after four weeks, I gave notice. I said to my boss, how much time do you need? And he said, two weeks is fine. And so after six weeks, left that job and just thought, I'm going to throw caution to the wind. I Yes, I just got my MBA and yes, I, I should be using it somehow, but I love the translation industry. I'm used to, I was used to living and working like a student or living like a student 
sorry, and working like a student, it was a lot of work, and uh, decided to do that in the end of 1992, shortly after graduating. And, and the first thing the business focused on was what? Was it, was it business to business translation? Yes, 100%. I mean, that was everything we focused on the entire time. The goal was to be the world's premier language solutions company. That was the thought from the dorm room. And, you know, I did see from my time at the other company, uh, there was a big need among businesses for translation. And then two years later, two years after I had left that company, I think the, the need had grown. I mean, I know the need had grown. I, I, as I mentioned, I majored in finance and international business at Stern. And it was the beginning of the globalization of business. I also called up a number of translators I had worked with and I asked them how business was for them. And they said, uh, there's a big need. So it was focusing on you know, being a B2B company, delivering language solutions for business. You know, one of the great challenges for, for entrepreneurs is combining, you know, doing what you need to do, in your case, the translation, with growing the business and expanding it into other things. And you're able to look back now, three decades, and, and, and it worked. You know, it's, it's, you know, survivor bias and economics. But how did you balance those two between, you know, becoming that, you know, premier translation service in the beginning before you become a premier, you know, sort of global business services company? How, how does that growth happen, you know, as an entrepreneur who, as I understand from my research, you know, decided to keep the company private. So you weren't bringing in a lot of investors. You were sort of you know, quite literally bootstrapping it and figuring it out as you went along. So how did you, how did you do that? Just so I understand, how did we grow it? Yeah. Well, how did you, I mean, you, you had to do two things. First, you had to make it, you know, a, a viable business. You had to have proof of concept that you could do what you set out to do. Um, and, and you do that, but then how do you say, okay, we've done that. What else can we do? You know, so, so talk first about, you know, how you made sure that the business was great at its, its core, its, its initial core business, the translation, B2B translation. And then after that, how did you say, okay, well, that's pretty good. You know, what else can we do? How do we grow it? I think that'd be interesting to hear. Right. Well, definitely the goal was uh, to, to, as I said, to be the world's premier language solutions company. Um, at first we were focused on document translation above all, because this was in 1992 and it was really pre-technology. And we just focused on making sure we were delivering the highest quality work with top of the line service along the lines of a top tier investment bank or law firm. And so we needed to make sure the quality of the translations was, you know, top notch. And then we were available for our clients whenever they needed us. So you know, we operated with a sense of urgency and, as I mentioned, top-of-the-line service. And um, so it was all about quality and service, quality and service. And then over time, we expanded our deliverables, or our services. Um, so, again, I mean, so the, our, our core values were spoiling the client with service and delivering the highest quality. And, and we did that. And then from there, there was a lot of – we were able to get repeat business and referrals – and, you know, that was a key part of it. And then what happened next were we can continue to offer the services we were offered, offering. We started opening offices in other places. We would have goals for the number of offices each year, four offices a year. And so offering those services in other cities around the country. And 
then over time offering other services based on client need. Mm-hmm. So that in a nutshell is how we grew. Yeah. I can imagine, I mean, again, I'm, I'm making this up. So feel free to, you know, feel free to correct me if, if I'm wrong here, but if somebody came to you and said, we need this uh, annual report translated from Spanish to English or English to French, you could say we're, you know, right on that. I mean, did you have early on somebody come to you and say, we need this translated from uh, Slovak to Mandarin and, and you had to pause for a second. Did you ever have really <laughs> challenging uh, assignments be that, where am I going to find the translator who knows both, you know, Slovak and, and Mandarin? Yeah, no, that's a really good question. And the funny thing is our very first project was English into Slovak, just coincidentally. <laughs> just, it, was a, it was a small legal document. But anyway, that said, absolutely. One of our first few projects when we were still in the dorm room, because the way it worked in the dorm room, just to give a little background on that, this, because I didn't mention this, but we were in that dorm room and the goal was within six months to be able to pay for an office. And right at the end of six months, we had enough revenue and profit to pay for that first office. But in that first six months, when we were still in the dorm room, we had a request for English into Russian, but what the work was, was very technical, technical mining. Uh, so geology, English into Russian, and we needed the type of linguists who had their PhDs in geology, were native Russian speakers. And we ended up finding a few that had literally worked in those mines in Russia, and they were professional translators. So that was part of what we could offer that others couldn't. I mean, that was our goal, to find the best linguists out there and with quite esoteric abilities, you know, basically 150 languages and all different levels of, um, well, all di- sorry, all different terminologies. And so anything from technical mining to technical, pharmaceutical, legal, financial, telecommunications. And so anyway, that was an example that that mining um, document with the geologists from Russia. And that was literally when we were still in the dorm room. And in that dorm room, I mean, we had a cat, we, we had roaches, and it was a little tiny, you know, studio apartment. So, yeah. But put this in context, this is, you know, the early 1990s, you know, there was no Google, you or you weren't able to just Google, find me a uh, Russian mining expert. <laughs> How are you going around finding these, these translators, particularly for such, you know, very specific, technical, some might say esoteric uh, yeah. requests. Yeah. Yeah, no, you're right. That's a great question. Um, so a couple of ways. One is, I remember we would call the Russian consulate, for example. That would be one way. There was back then something called the American Translators Association. And then there was the International Association of Translators, but that was about it. And so we would call them and get names and they had a directory. And then from those names, we would get other names. So we get the directory of translators, we'd call them up or we'd call the um, Russian consulate, we'd get the names and then good translators would refer other good translators to us. And that's really how we grew our network. But uh, getting the right linguists involved was, you know, a critical part of the whole thing and, and much harder than a lot more phone calls and a lot more, you know, being creative as far as, you know, places to look. Yeah. Was there a lot of travel involved for you? 
Yes. Over the years. Yes. I'm just wondering um, early days to sort of, you know, find people and meet people or, you know, both the translators, but also, you know, the sales component of this, you know, getting into those companies that might need your services. I'm just wondering how you went about, about doing that. Yes, absolutely. Um, the translators, a lot of it was on the phone, but then we would go to translator conferences and meet the translators there. Um, Definitely when we started opening offices, uh, we would go to the city and find the office space and train the people there. So absolutely back then, um, also to meet clients and, and to present to clients, a lot of traveling uh, in the earlier days and then over time, but over time there was less of that presentations to clients because it, over time we had more offices and we had a local presence. So then we had people in those cities able to interact with the clients. But then because we had over a hundred offices around the world, we would bring our people together a few times a year for big employee conferences. Wow. Uh, we had an international sales conference. We had a, a North American sales conference and same with our production conferences. And so we would bring everyone together so they, they would feel part of a team. And we would always do that in different cities around the world. So there were, there was a lot of travel over the years and, and it was fun and exciting. Yeah. I mean, as a manager, and, and I don't want this to sound like too broad brush of a question, but I, you know, the, the needs of somebody who's out selling, um, they're, they're, you know, typically very extroverted people they're, they want to sell, they want to succeed, they want to win versus, you know, translation, the little translation I've done, it, it's a fairly solitary, you know, exercise. You need to be able to concentrate. It's, you know, you need to get it right. It's time consuming. When you're managing a, a company that has, you know, those as your, your sort of opposites, um, what were some of the strategies you had to put in place to make sure, you know, the salespeople were sufficiently motivated, but that the translators felt sufficiently valued for what they were doing? Yeah, that's a, a great question because I remember at the other company that I was at where I really learned about the industry, I remember one of the feelings I had was I always felt like it was production versus sales, sales versus production. And I had, I had the opportunity to work in both areas and I thought we need to find ways to put everyone on the same team. But it is true. I mean, I, I suppose that's why there are companies needed, such as translation companies, because the translators are... Uh, working in a very solitary environment on the computer all day long. They need quiet. And then what we had at our company were project managers who would be remotely or, or in person managing those translators. And then they would interact with our salespeople. Mm. And then our salespeople would interact with our clients. So the production managers and the salespeople were doing the interacting, but the production managers were really sort of a liaison to the translators. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and, and of course the growth of your, your company, you know, tracked with the growth of the, the internet and, you know, with that, the need for, you know, more, you know, the ability to, to, to read a website in, in many different, you know, languages. Do you remember the first, you know, website or corporate, you know, document online that, that you translated and, and what it was? <sighs> That's a great question. <laughs> <laughs> the very first one. Um, or one of the early ones. I don't want to put you on the spot. The memorable one that sticks out. Memorable website or, I mean, I remember 
I have certain memories of, of our whole experience, including well before that, uh, when we were sending documents, and this is pre-email, and so I know this will make me sound like a dinosaur, but when we were first receiving documents from translators and sending them back to clients, it was by modem, and it for a 100-page document could take four hours by modem. So <laughs> I remember that, and that was in the dorm room. Um, and then I remember the floppy disks that we would deliver, but as far as the first uh, thing that we did in a digital medium, um, I was trying to think of, well, Royal Caribbean was a big client of ours. The cruise and, line. I mean, I will tell yeah, the cruise line. Yes, yep. exactly. And we did a lot of work for them, including their website. They were definitely one of the first whose website we did. We had a whole department dedicated to them because we did a lot that, of different things. That's fascinating yeah. because they, they, yeah. they're trying to get people from all over the world to take their cruises, wherever the cruises are going. And if you can't read the website in whatever country you're in, you're, you're not going to take the cruise. Was that the thinking? Absolutely. And I remember Hilton was a big client. Starwood was a big client. Travel yeah. and hospitality were, were big um, clients for, for we of website software localization. I mean, but yeah, so what happened to us is we, um, just in a nutshell, in 1999, we started a second company called translations.com. And that was dedicated to anything in a digital medium. Uh, so websites, software, because we were doing those things as part of the original company, but we wanted to perhaps grow the, that part of the company more quickly with the .com boom and and perhaps go public and um then the dot-com bubble burst my partner and i bought out investors that we had in that company a small number of investors and then we consolidated the whole company but um yeah that was an interesting time as well mm -hmm. you know and i was sort of reading up on the company uh, one of the signature innovations was something called global link C can you tell people listening you know what global link is how it came about Global link. Yeah, well, that was a technology um, that we created. And what happened is technology came into play in the 90s, the, the late 90s. We did a number of things. And that technology had a number of different pieces to it. But basically, we had um, a project management uh, module. And we had... Um, we had machine translation modules and mm. we had ways that the website could be translated with using humans on the front end, but then updating it with human work uh, in an automated way on the back end. So I guess, I mean, in a nutshell, we worked to be on the cutting edge of technology, whether it was computer-aided translation tools, machine translation, uh, project management terminology and global link was our suite of services. Um, and that, that was helpful. And, and really that was the concept of anticipating clients needs before they knew they had them. We knew that we couldn't just, you know, do documents. We needed to be an end to end solution for clients and technology was coming into play in a bigger and bigger way. So we needed to figure out ways to, to be ahead of the game and offer them technologies which would reduce um, time to get the work done, reduce uh, price, and um, increase quality and increase consistency. So uh, that was what we did with yeah. Global Link and our other technologies. 
Yeah. You know, you ran this company that you co-founded for, for almost you know, over 25 years. You know, what were some of the challenges that, that stuck out, you know, as, you know, sort of businesses often, you know, plateau, but what, what were some of the challenges every time it plateaued that you, you oh, yeah, no, we had lots of challenges. So in the, in the early days, um, we were really two young people trying to, to build a team and grow a company. And, we worked so hard on getting the business and it was all about sales, 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 bring in business. And then what would happen is we would hire employees and they were great employees, but it, there would be a tremendous amount of work. It was a very labor intensive industry and people would get burnt out. And there we wanted to differentiate ourselves with our quality and our service, but our people were getting, you know, getting burnt out. So we, we'd start to pay them more. We'd give them bonuses, raises. We thought, okay, this will keep them happy, but they still burnt out. You know, they wanted their work-life balance. They needed their time. So we, we lost a lot of good people in the early days just because we couldn't keep up with the work. We were trying to deliver the absolute best quality and service. And then when we did it, it was burning out our people. So there was some of that. And then we needed to learn as we grew how to maintain quality and maintain service. And that could be a challenge because there we were trying to differentiate ourselves with quality and service. But as the team grows, it's the challenge of, of keeping that up. So that was a challenge. And um, then the challenge that every company has of hiring or finding, hiring, training, and retaining the best people. And we certainly were able to do that in, in spades because that's how we grew the company. We had the best people in the industry. We really did, but that's the continual challenge. Mm -hmm. Right. And you know, your background, I know you speak to a lot of other entrepreneurs and, and sort of, you know, entrepreneurship 101 is always to sort of embrace mistakes and, and failures. Now we just talked about challenges here, but you know, were there any mistakes that you made, you know, along the way that, you know, others listening might be able to, to learn from? Sure. Sure. Well, so when my partner and I started off the company, we were young, as I mentioned, and very inexperienced and we're doing it completely bootstrapping it. I mean, with no funding whatsoever and we couldn't afford to pay for an accountant. We couldn't afford to pay for a lawyer. So we tried to do it on our own and we were able to do it, but we did not at the outset get a shareholders agreement. And now, you know, I, I think I tell everyone when I speak about entrepreneurship, that was one of our big mistakes. I will tell you as the years went on, I tried to do it. We brought in lawyers um, a few years into it, but as time went on, um, when I realized we must have this, it was too late. Couldn't get it done. So what I, I would say to everyone is you need to have that shareholders agreement when you uh, start off the company before there's anything to fight over, before it grows, before there's anything to argue about. And it's basically uh, to define decision-making, uh, dispute resolution, uh, to have a buy-sell provision, to define what happens if someone dies, becomes disabled, uh, and an exit strategy, and, and overall roles. So there are a lot of things that need to be agreed upon at the outset when, as I said, there's nothing to fight over. And we didn't have that. And 
we had an interesting and could at times rocky relationship over the 26 years we were in business. But after about 20 years, it became very challenging. And in order to get to the next stage where we would have a shareholders agreement or one of us would exit, um, unfortunately, I needed to litigate. So, so it was a big lesson learned that it needs to be done at the outset. And that's what I would say to anybody who's starting a company. Tell me what you're doing now. What have you been doing since 2018? Sure. So I started a foundation and my foundation is focusing on um, helping empower women and other marginalized populations, basically helping to achieve equality for all. And that's what I've been doing. And um, I've really loved, loved it. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. I mean, how does running a foundation differ from, from running and growing a, a, a company? Well, uh, you know, I think the, the positive of it is all the things that you might want to do over the years while you're trying to run your company, grow your company, uh, and you can focus on and, and, and it feels good um, to try to give back in ways that I wasn't able to before. I didn't have time uh, to before. So, so that's great. Um, you know, I, I miss working with the big groups of people day in and day out. And, um, you know, that's, that is hard, but I, I will say I love being in the next phase and trying to give back because I feel like it's the least I could do. There's so much that needs to be addressed in our country. So many amazing causes and I'm excited to be a part of it. Now, I, I, I've got to ask, you know, you're married with two kids. Um, do you ever use your language skills to have sidebars about your kids so you can uh, outsmart <laughs> them? Or uh, you declare, I don't know, French Friday or Spanish Saturday where you can only complain if you do it in the language of the day? The thing is, my I can't do that with my husband because he doesn't speak the languages. Um, so my one of my sons takes Spanish and Chinese so I can speak to him in Spanish. And, and I do that, that occasionally. Yeah. The other speaks Chinese. So occasionally the two of them will speak Chinese and, with each other and we don't know what's going on. <laughs> they can conspire <laughs> so, against you. Right. Exactly. So, uh, yeah, I mean, you know, it's funny. The languages are fun. I do miss that. Although I, I must say I'm extremely rusty at this point. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Now we're going to get to the last bit uh, of this uh, where I've asked the same five questions uh, to everybody I'm inter- I've interviewed. And it's uh, the beyond the summit fast five. Now the, the rule is here. You, you don't think you, you just answer the questions. Okay. You ready? Okay. Don't okay. think, don't think just answer. Number one, what did you want to be? when you arrived at Trinity that first day of freshman year? Happy. Oh, all right. That's a good one. Oh, well, I mean, I'm sorry. Is that the type of answer? Or do you want, like, what do I want? No, to it can be whatever you want. Okay. Yeah. Number two. Okay. What's one thing that happened at Trinity that people you work with don't know about you? It needs to be a Trinity. <laughs> right. Ideally. Yeah. Oh, gosh. Oh, gosh. Um, there's gotta be something it has to be. Okay. I'm sorry. I'm struggling with this. I can think of things that happen that are embarrassing, but <laughs> no, Trinity. Embarrassing. it's All gotta right. be a Trinity. We'll, we'll, we'll pass. We'll pass on number two. Pass on number two. Number three, when you look back on the narrative of your life, 
Was there a moment at Trinity that was instrumental in you becoming an entrepreneur? Well, I, I suppose it was when I decided to major in languages, because if I hadn't majored in languages, I'm sure I wouldn't have worked at the translation company. And if I hadn't worked at the other translation company, I wouldn't have started my own. And number four, what advice would you give to a current Trinity student who aspires to be an entrepreneur? Just go for it. Take the risk. I would recommend people do it when they're young and single, um, if they can, because I felt like that, that was very helpful for me. It would have been much harder to do it when I was married and had kids, uh, because I think when you do it, the best way to do it is to really throw yourself into it and make it be, make it your one focus, your single focus and sacrifice some things. And, you know, like friends, uh, you know, uh, family time. I mean, whatever you need to do. I mean, that was how it worked for me. I had to go in 150%. And so I recommend doing it when you're young, when you're used to living like a student where you don't have a lot to lose and you can just give it everything you have. Yeah, good. And the last question, number five, if the Trinity Bantam, our alma mater's beloved mascot, was on your board of directors, what role would the bird have? <laughs> I don't have a board of directors. Um, sorry, I don't have a board of directors. Um, chairman? <laughs> really? So even at, your, at, at TransPerfect, you'd make the bird the chairman of the board? Well, believe me, we needed some board of directors. One of our challenges that related to the lack of a shareholders agreement is we didn't have a board because we couldn't agree on that. So uh, we, needed, we needed a chairman of the board. We needed a tiebreaker. And uh, yeah, that would be the most important role that was not filled. So we needed that. I love so it. I love, I, I love the image of the Bantam just sitting there. <laughs> it's fantastic. Right, right. Liz, this has been so much fun. Thank you very much for your time today. I appreciate it. Oh, thank you, Paul. I really appreciate it. It was great. This episode of Beyond the Summit was made possible by Caroline DeVoe, Ellen Buckhorn, and all the amazing people at the Trinity College Communications Department. Also, Mary Mahoney, The Story Labs, and the Watkinson Library for production management and resources. A big thank you to Paul Sullivan, our amazing alumni host. The theme music for this show was written and performed by the very talented Noah Weber. Thank you for listening to Beyond the Summit.